Welcome to the Marketers in Motion podcast, powered by the West Michigan chapter of the American Marketing Association. Marketing is our passion, and as a chapter, we hope to inspire dialogue, fuel creativity, and create a community for marketers everywhere. Let the inspiration and dialogue begin. We're online at amawestmichigan.org and active on social media, where you can connect with us on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, and LinkedIn. The national hub for the American Marketing Association is ama.org, where you can also find a chapter near you. The Marketers in Motion podcast is on iTunes, Stitcher, SoundCloud, and at amawestmichigan.org, where we encourage you not only to subscribe to our podcast, but review, ask questions, get involved, and engage with us. Hello, I'm your host, Josh Janowiak. Today's topic, keeping your marketing legal. Today, marketers are no stranger to the words data privacy, intellectual property, copyright, and cybersecurity, but keeping up with the latest in regulatory and legal changes can be tough. We're joined by Jennifer Paplava, an intellectual property and technology attorney at Micah Myers. Jennifer helps clients protect their trade secrets, trademarks, copyrights, and other intellectual property. Our co-host today, Megan Pear, AMA West Michigan president. Hi, Josh. How are you? Megan, I am great. And I know that you are super, super pumped about this topic. Yes. <laughs> excited. Very excited. I mean, typically would say the the legal stuff is not really the sexiest of, of marketing topics to talk about, but normally Megan, people don't like the lawyers. So I'm, I'm just, Oh, I love it. I, yeah. This is going to be a great chat. So looking forward to it. So Jennifer, welcome. Thank you. And please tell us a little bit about yourself and how you got into this type of law and what you do here at Micah Myers. It's, it's been an interesting journey. I, I knew that I wanted to go to law school when I was in second grade because we had a family wow. friend who, um, was a criminal prosecutor. So, for many years, I thought this is I'm going to put the bad guys away. I'll be a criminal prosecutor. And then I went to law school and realized that, no, I can't. I can't do that. That's going to stress <laughs> me out. So I uh, majored in college in mass communications. And so I pivoted to the the civil and commercial side of things and really started um, right out of law school here at Micah Myers uh, doing this kind of work uh, in addition to some litigation work. And so I, I really enjoyed it. Um, because it's it's a challenging area because the technology often outpaces the law. So you have mm-hmm. to really try to predict how courts are going to come down on particular issues or interpretations. And that keeps things interesting. Oh, sure. It's never, no never day is never the same, right? Never boring. Never boring. <laughs> it, it is a lot easier um, with the uh, more widespread use of the Internet. Because I'm, I'm going to date myself here, but when I started here at Micah Myers 21 years ago, we had one computer connected to an internet connection. Oh, wow. <laughs> and AOL was how we got there. Yep. So it's, yeah, things have changed. Times have changed, yes. Well, first of all, I do want to say thank you for, I hear your name all the time on my local NPR station for supporting our local NPR station. I know when Megan had mentioned Micah Myers, I'm like, oh, I know that name. So, you know, that that marketing top of mind awareness is, is working in that respect. And then going back to what got you into this line of business, was there maybe like a, a daytime courtroom drama or anything that 
that made you think like this is the perfect thing for me oh my um you know not really i so my my parents were pretty strict about the television watching back okay. in those days oh, okay. and so i actually became interested in it by going to court with this family friend and sitting there and watching a criminal trial and i should clarify this by saying i grew up right outside gary indiana oh, oh wow. okay so things you know there's there's Beautiful a bit of, bit of crime bit of crime mm-hmm. yeah. happening there and uh it, it was the live viewing of criminal trials that made me think, wow, this is super interesting. Oh, yeah. Yeah. It's much better than TV. It is. Oh, (laughs) much, much different than TV. Although less Perry Mason moments, perhaps. Right. (laughs) Now, is there any kind of legal disclaimer that we need to make since you are in the business of law? before we talk about anything and really get into the dirt? Yes, sir. I just want to clarify that the conversation that we're about to have is a a general conversation. We're not going to be talking about specific issues. And, you know, whenever you ask a lawyer's opinion about something general, their answer will generally be, it depends. And it does. So if you have a specific legal question, ask your attorney. Uh, Don't take what we say here as gospel or as legal advice. Good to know. Thank you. I appreciate that clarification. Well, and there was a recent article in the Grand Rapids Business Journal that you gave a great overview of the scope of work that you do and what we just talked about as far as uh, the law trying to keep up with the technology, with social media, with websites and everything that we have today. So let's jump right in uh, to the third party content and how we can keep our, our websites legal. So where do you want to start with that topic? Oh my. Well, we can we yeah. can start right at the beginning with yeah. third party content. I would say so. Yeah. I mean, I think content and, and as a marketer, that's something that we might not necessarily think of when we're designing a website that we have to keep legal things in mind. It is a very common uh, misunderstanding mm-hmm. that um, you can't use things just because it appears on the internet. And I've had a, a great many people say to me, but I, but I found it online, so why can't I use it? Well, you know, if you create an original work of authorship, whether it's a, a picture or a piece of design work or code even underlying a website, you have the right to decide what happens to that work and how it gets used. So mm-hmm. if you create something and you allow it to be used online, um, you have the right to control what's done with that. So someone else can't just come along and, you know, cut paste a picture from one website onto the other without first getting your permission. Um, I, I see a lot of clients, you know, on a fundamental level that have, that don't have that understanding that they need to get permission before using someone else's work. So that's sort of a, a, a preliminary hurdle, I would say. Yeah, and I was reading here too. I thought this was really interesting because uh, this I didn't know either. But a copyright registration doesn't have to exist. Well, that's right? true. That's right. Um, it used to be different. It used to be decades ago that you had to have a copyright registration in order to have copyrights. Mm-hmm. That's no longer so. Okay. Just by virtue of actually creating the work, your copyright exists at the time that you put that work into a tangible medium. So if you type something up um, and it's an original work of authorship, your copyright attaches to that immediately. 
so you have a bundle of rights that are associated with that. Um, you still, however, have to register your copyright if you ever want to enforce your rights against a third party. So let's say that, Megan, you've created something um, and Josh rips it off mm -hmm. and starts using it. You can, at that point, file for a copyright registration and you must do that before you sue Josh for copyright okay. infringement. There's some advantages to filing for a copyright registration in advance of an infringement like that. You can get special damages and you can get your attorney's fees compensated by Josh instead of mm -hmm. out of your own pocket. But it is, it is something that is optional. And one of the nice things about the Copyright Office now is that they've actually provided a lot of really helpful educational materials on their website. And I, usually when clients come to me asking about filing a copyright application, I tell them to look at the website and then come back to me if they need further help because sure. it's a pretty straightforward process to getting the registration. Awesome. Josh, you ripped me off. I'm coming for yeah. you. Well, it's, it's, careful with that. it's funny that you mentioned that scenario because... <laughs> I did not take something from Megan personally, but I did in the past take something on the internet that wasn't technically free and used. I actually found it on a website that claimed copyright free images. But then when you went in on deeper layers, it's saying, no, all of these are not copyright free and yada, yada, yada. And then there are so many versions of the same image that are out there that are just a little bit different. So, I mean, you really can't just go and do an, a Google image search and use any image that just pops up. Mm -hmm. I'm sure that's the Many. default for everybody is just to go do a Google image search, find whatever you like, and then just plop it on your website. Well, and even the well-intentioned um, developers will go to an image database or a clip art site thinking that they have the right to use images from that site because it's labeled as quote unquote free. Right. Mm -hmm. A lot of those sites have terms of use that restrict what can be done even with those images. And, you know, for example, uh, there are clip art sites that say these are free for use and then if you look at the fine print it says for personal use only not for commercial use so if you take the clip art and you put it on a website that's a commercial website you violated their terms of use you are now subject to a copyright infringement claim and and so it's it i always tell my clients you you have to think through what you're doing you have to be careful you can't just assume that everything is as mm -hmm. it is on its face, you need to dive a little bit deeper to make sure that you're not, that you're reading the fine print essentially. And that applies too to like stock photo yes. services, right? Because I've seen a lot too, like they'll have enhanced licenses where you yes. can do with more commercial images. So how does that work? I, uh, pretty much the same, same way. I mean, the, the devil's in the details of the contract and every mm -hmm. contract is different. Um, and it, it's something that, you know, I, I, I try to, impress upon all my clients across the board. You have to understand the deal you're getting yourself into. You have to actually read the words. Mm -hmm. And, you know, we, we all get the big legal documents and the print is very small and we want to just skip through it and not pay attention to it. But, you know, knowing the difference between your regular license and an enhanced license could be the difference between legal use and a lawsuit. So sure. it's important to understand. Another question around this too, I, I think people sometimes think, oh, I'm not going to get caught. Do you see a lot of copyright infringement cases? I do. And you know, I, the thing is that people violate copyright every day in a million different ways. I mean, the copyright law is uh, sometimes 
a, a little bit overbroad in its application. I mean, it would prevent people from functioning in a lot of different ways. It, it is true that it's difficult to get caught if you're violating copyright in a way that you're not then publishing to the world. Like if you, you know, make a copy of a textbook just so you can have a personal copy for yourself, but then you don't actually publish that anywhere else, it would be very difficult for the owner of that textbook to know that you've done that. Mm-hmm. It doesn't make it any less of a copyright infringement, but they won't find out. The, the way that more um, content owners are finding out about infringements is that a lot of the infringed material is now being pushed out online. And it is it is easy for content owners to search for their images. And, and I don't know if and I don't know if your lawsuit involves Getty Images, but I mean, Getty has made a cottage industry out of going after yeah. well-intentioned copyright infringers and innocence or you know, good faith is no excuse to a copyright infringement action. So Getty has people who will just go out and search their images constantly. And when they find them, they will know wow. whether or not it's been licensed properly. And they, they can... They send out their standard letter, and you. I, when clients come to me with that letter, I say, <laughs> yep. "We got to wrap this up. You don't want to litigate this yeah. because you you made a mistake and you used something that you shouldn't have." Right, right. So, so here's the question. Yes, is it safe for me to share like memes and stuff? From it's, other you know, it's an interesting and developing area, and it actually takes us into a different area of copyright law. So yeah. that's a good transition. Um, there is a concept in copyright law called fair use which means you can use someone else's work in certain ways, like newsworthy ways or a transformative use or parody so that it's you're making a change to the work and you're transforming it to something else. So many times a lot of the memes are treated okay. as, you know, it's it's parody or it's, yeah. it's something else. But you, you know, uh, there are certain meme uh producers who have gotten on the wrong end of some legal issues because they've ripped off someone else's memes and pushed them out there as their as their own. Got it. Yeah. Ooh, my the, I mean, the reality <laughs> is if you're if you're pushing out a meme on your Facebook site and you've copied it from somewhere else, it might be copyright infringement. Uh, the likelihood that someone's going to come after sure. you for that is probably pretty, pretty low. Now, if you've peddled it off to an organization that puts it on their website or on their corporate social media, then it gets a little bit more exposure and you're, you know, you're then more visible. And so it's a bigger problem. Okay. Is there any truth to whether or not you're profiting off of those things? It is a factor, but it is not a determinative factor. Okay. So if you're using someone else's work and you're not making money off of it, but it otherwise doesn't satisfy the fair use test, then you still have a problem. I, and, and the biggest um, example that I can give from my own practice is my educational institution clients. They are nonprofit. Um, that does not mean that they can just use everyone else's work in connection with their teaching services that they're providing to students. They still have to get permission for certain things. It's a little more flexible. You can do a little bit more copying. Um, There's a little bit more leeway, but they certainly don't have carte blanche to just copy everything and anything. So I think like the point here, this is why it's so important. What's the takeaway? The takeaway from a marketer perspective, this is why you should have original photos, right? Mm -hmm. Hire somebody to do original photos for you. And get an agreement (laughs) with them. And get an agreement, yes. Yes, yes. because the and this may be getting a little bit too much into the weeds, but if you don't have a written 
agreement to transfer a copyright, then the copyright isn't transferred. So let's say, Megan, that you, you hire a photographer to take pictures for you, but you don't have anything in writing, then you have a license to use those photos. Mm-hmm. Um, you don't own the copyright to those photos, which means your photograph, if whoever took the photographs, can then arguably make derivative works from those photographs and do other things with them. So it's another example of you, you really want to get your deal nailed down in writing mm-hmm. so that you understand who has rights to what and who walks away from the engagement owning the right to do things yeah. with the photos in the future. And I know you mentioned that in your article too. Yeah. Um, and I thought that was really interesting because it's, it's not just for images. No. This is like if you're hiring a company to design a website or do any marketing agency, you need to get this all in writing. Absolutely. And it doesn't have to be a full-blown fancy legal document. I mean, we lawyers love those because, mm. you know, you can get everything in there. But I, I mean, get an email. You know, email signatures are enforceable as signatures. If you get your arrangement summarized in an email and you can have someone respond to that to say, yes, I agree to this, that's an enforceable contract. Oh. But, you know, website development agreements um, can go haywire in a lot of different ways. And we could probably, I mean, that could be its own podcast because there are a lot of different things in addition to the intellectual property issues that you really need to talk about at the outset of the deal. Like what happens when the relationship ends? If the developer decides to host the website and you decide you're not happy with their services, what happens? Can you mm. can you take the website and go somewhere else or are they going to hang on to it? You know, do they have to cooperate to transfer it? It's uh, It can get very messy if you don't okay. talk about those things in advance. It's kind of... It's not fun to have that conversation at the outset mm-hmm. of a relationship with a service provider, but it's it's smart to do because it avoids a lot of problems. It's like a divorce. It is. It's like a prenup. <laughs> it's or it's prenup, like an ins- yeah. you know an insurance contract. No one likes to do it, but it's a good idea to do it. <laughs> so if you work with a, a marketing agency and they write some blogs for you, they take some photos for you, they do some videos for you, would an all-encompassing contract be the best, or do you need like a verb or a not a verbal but a written email for each little project that they do no i generally that kind of arrangement would be covered under what i would call a master services agreement okay that would say these are the types of services you're going to be providing and any any deliverables that you give to us will be owned by us even though you've created it you're transferring your copyright to us and it would clarify that Um, for bigger development work if there's coding or different specific projects i've had clients break up um, have a master services agreement, but then break up uh, smaller descriptions into statements of work so mm-hmm. that they can get that specificity for an isolated project in writings. And again, that's just so they're avoiding any possible confusion in the future about what the deal was. And, you know, it's defining expectations, too, so that everybody ends up being happy at the end of the day because everybody understood what was going to be happening. Absolutely. Yeah. And crazy to think that even the code Right. Be yes. Something that code is yeah. copyrightable. Yeah. Code and images. I mean, you know, it, the display of a website is in and of itself copyrightable, and the underlying source code, as wow. long as it's original, mm-hmm. is is copyrightable. Now, I know I've read the definition many times between the difference between a copyright and a trademark. Sure. What can you summarize that for me? I can. Uh, a Please. copyright, absolutely. <laughs> 
Um, a copyright protects an original work of authorship. Okay. It's a bundle of rights, including the the right to reproduce and to distribute and to display. So, um, creating a piece of art or an image or a written work would be something that's protected under copyright. Trademark is the area of intellectual property law that relates to designation of source or origin of goods or services, which is a fancy way of saying, you know, um, ownership of a name or a logo with respect to specific services. So if you own a trademark in a name, uh, you can prevent people from using your trademark or confusingly similar trademark in connection with similar goods or services. So it all comes down to eliminating customer confusion or potential customer confusion with a mark. And it's branding. Sure. Yeah. yeah, It's protecting your brand and making a stronger brand because the value of a trademark is the goodwill in the trademark. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. I feel like we could have a whole podcast on like copyright and trademark. Oh, yeah. We could. That's why I said, uh, yeah, you'll have to cut me off at the end of this. No, no. This is all good. Well, and in the article, the other thing that you mentioned too, uh, the, the truth in advertising. And I wonder about this just on the level of, you know, somebody's always claiming to be the best at something or we have the best coffee or the best hamburger. And there are claims that obviously people just throw out there pretty loosely. So how fine, how picky is that and how careful do you have to be about truth and marketing? It depends. No, but <laughs> you you can use puffery. You can say it's the best or it's the you know, most favoritist or whatever. But once you have a a definable statement, like I, I don't know the biggest or the you know it's something that could possibly not be true because it's quantifiable, objective. right? Quanti- well, you know, then maybe that's too legal of a word. But if if you <laughs> if you're saying something that is not true then that's a problem okay. under under a lot of different laws. There's a Michigan law that requires that people be truthful with consumers and the Federal Trade Commission also polices that on a lot of different levels. You, you can say, you know, best coffee ever, but you can't say, you know, sold most coffee in Grand Rapids if that's not true. Okay. Or that I, I'm not mm-hmm. I'm not being very articulate with better examples, coffee than Starbucks. Yeah, that well, and well. then it, then it comes the question <laughs> that could be a potential problem. I mean, Starbucks would probably take issue with that. Yeah. But there's a whole separate sub area of law regarding comparative marketing. Okay. I mean, you can you know you've all seen the you know Tide versus yep. Gain or whatever, or Bond, Pepsi Bond versus Light. Coke or. If you can show that, yes, the performance of one is like this compared to the performance of the other, that's allowed. But what you can't say is, you know, ours is great and theirs sucks. Gotcha. Without, sure. Yeah, having something to back it up. Oh man. Right. <laughs> it's 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 oh. an interesting area to navigate. I bet. Yeah. Now let's let's just quickly touch on it. That one could be a whole other subject could. as well. But um, so the fire festival, truth yeah, okay. in marketing. Right. <laughs> we were just chatting about this we before. Just ah, <laughs> we had to bring it up. Uh huh. So obviously they were they were wanting to deliver that, but as it got closer, there was no way they were going to. So at what point did that become a? Oh, there's so many legal issues wrapped up in that. And, and and to be clear, I have not read any of the any of the pleadings or the indictments or anything having to do with that. So I'm not opining on anything specific that's going on with all that litigation. But, um, you know, from an advertising standpoint, um, you could argue that their 
their claims that certain accommodations would be provided and that certain things would happen was in fact false and it was inducing people to attend and that was not indeed true. You know, whether they had an obligation to tell people that, you know, the wheels have fallen off and, you know, that's it, we may, it may not be as fancy as we thought, you know, that's a little bit fuzzier, you know, they, but yeah, that's, that's kind of an extreme example of misleading lots of people yeah. <laughs> in a million different ways. Okay. That makes a lot of sense. Yeah. A lot of it comes down to intent behind mm-hmm. the messaging as well. I mean, if, if they had pushed out messaging saying that this will be the greatest, most legendary event, even up to the end, you know, if they're... If they had said that, really believing that it would be true, then it might be a different question than saying, you know, you're, you'll be staying in a, a villa that'll sleep 11 and have gourmet food delivered to your yurt. Mm-hmm. I, that, those are very different things. Sure. Very different. Yeah. Yeah. That makes sense. Um, so I think that brings up another area of this truth in advertising that I want to talk about because this is huge right now, which is influencer yes. marketing. Um, and we all know the FTC has a lot of guidelines around this. They do. And they're evolving. And they're evolving. Ever evolving. Yes. I mean, we were just chatting before this that they had just recently sent out a bunch of letters to people. So can you just maybe briefly walk through what that looks like for, sure. for brands? So if, if a brand would like someone to, let, let's go with a clothing brand, mm-hmm. wants um, someone who's very popular on, let's say, Instagram to wear that clothing brand on Instagram to try to gain traction for that Instagram uh, celebrities, followers to purchase the brand, that, that influencer has to now disclose that they're wearing the clothes mm-hmm. to promote the brand. And it's, again, a difficult analysis sometimes because let's say that I went out and I bought some clothes from Macy's and I love the clothes and I decided that I'm going to go on my Facebook page and talk about how much I love this suit that I bought at Macy's. I'm allowed to do that right. even, even if I were famous, which I'm absolutely not. But you're allowed to to talk about how much you like a brand if you've paid for that brand okay. or paid for what you're wearing. However, if you were provided things for free with the understanding that you would say something about it, that's something that has to be disclosed. And I think that's where some of the disconnect happens because a lot of celebrities receive a lot of free stuff. Mm -hmm. And, you know, until recently, they haven't really had to say that, you know, this brand had dressed them and provided these accommodations and done all these things. And the FTC is now pretty clear in saying, no, you have to you have to disclose that so that people understand right. you didn't go out and pay for this. You were provided these things for free. Right. And I think it's part of the placement and presentation of the disclosure, right? That like, as well. Yes. Clear. It has to be clear. You can't you can't bury it. And mm-hmm. I mean it's you it has to be something that's consistent with the type. You can't uh, put something in very small font at the bottom, let's say if it's an Instagram post, you can't mm-hmm. bury it in the middle of a million hashtags. Sure. Um, There's some debate about what you have to say within your hashtags. I mean, saying hashtag sponsored isn't necessarily going to fly. Um, Hashtag advertisement 
is is a little bit more clear. clear. Yeah. So it's it's an evolving area. Okay. So I expect that we'll see a lot of generations of the FTC guidelines. Yeah. And it and it is helpful. And I, I encourage people who do this kind of work. And it really, I mean, everything from you know, there are housewives who order Stitch Fix, who start blogs, and mm-hmm. they've started to get free merchandise, and that they they would be included. You don't have to be a Kardashian to fall under these FTC guidelines as right. an influencer. And the other last thing on this, um, it's important for brands too, because you were mentioning that if they do get fined or the FTC comes after them, they can come after the brand. They can. If they are hiring an influencer. They can. Um, and, and some of that depends on the relationship between the, the brand or the company who, that owns the brand and the influencer themselves. But if we're being real, the brands have deeper pockets in many instances than the influencers. And, and the way that this tends to work with the FTC is they will receive a complaint or several um, from either a watchdog organization or people just in the public eye uh, or, or, you know, Joe Nobody saying, hey, we think that this violates the FTC rules. And the FTC will then either send a letter or they will actually file an action. Once an action is filed by the FTC, um, there's a risk of administrative fines. And then you have to actually go through a process of remediating your your process and your system to show that you're going to comply in the future and not screw this up again. And, and that becomes very expensive. Sure. Because you have to hire lawyers and then you have to, you know, revamp how you do things from a marketing standpoint. It's much people don't necessarily want to invest invest money on the front end in making sure that they're taking the steps to comply with these regulations. Mm -hmm. But it's much cheaper to do that than it is to react to an FTC order. It's worth it. It is worth it. Best up front. It is worth it. Yes. Yeah. Yeah, Do your do your due diligence. Now, I hope I'm not confusing two two separate things, but as, as far as. Uh, content that you're putting on your website whether, or social media pages, if you are promoting other services in some abstract way, is that something that can be included in your privacy policy or is the privacy policy strictly more just about the data you're collecting? Um, I would say both. You can't, you can't bury your... Um your disclosure about sponsored posts in your privacy policy. Okay. It has to be with the post itself. You can say in your privacy policy that, you know, we include content provided by third parties or we include sponsored content, but you have to actually call out on your page what is being sponsored and what is an advertisement and what is not. That said, if your entire page is just one big ad, I suppose you could disclose that. You know, if it's obvious that it's ads, you could say that in a privacy policy, but that's that's probably fairly rare. On the privacy policy front, nowadays you see more and more every website that you go to, you mm-hmm. have to click on that, that privacy policy. I'm not sure that anybody actually reads those things. If you were just even doing Google Analytics, if you are not strategically really mining specific data, do you still need that data policy? Yes, and it's funny that you bring up Google Analytics. If you use Google Analytics tools, you must have a privacy policy according to Google. Mm. Because if you read the terms and conditions of your relationship with Google, and use of Google Analytics, Google says you must you must include this information in your privacy policy. So yes. Okay. Are there basic template policies out there that you can use for that, or do you need to get your legal team involved and actually 
Um, the, the answer is, again, it depends. Um, it, if you have a very simple website that is static and not dynamic, if you're really not collecting much information, or let's say that you're just using Google Analytics and you're really not doing that much else, you're not taking payments, um, then there it is probably quite easy to put together a privacy policy using you know one of the million examples that are out there. The danger in using a template or in starting from someone else's privacy policy, however, is that a privacy policy is only good if it's accurate. Mm -hmm. And so the danger that you have if you take someone else's privacy policy and use it as your own is your practices may not match up with theirs. And so if you're saying something in your privacy policy that's inaccurate, then it's a whole separate FTC investigation right there. And the FTC, this used to be kind of their pet thing. They would they would go after people who say one thing in their privacy policy and do another. So there's a danger there. Um, I, I recommend to my clients who ask that they at least have an attorney look over sure. the privacy policy and that they think through the language of the privacy policy to make sure that it's accurate. That's probably the best thing is just to have a second set of eyes on it. Well, and particularly, and and the reason that you're seeing so many privacy policies pop up is because of GDPR, which I I think was pegged to discuss later on in our talk. But um, if, if you have any kind of reach into the European Union, then there is a new set of rules that apply to what you have to do with your website and your privacy policy. And one of those things was to push out a notice saying that you have this privacy policy and asking people who visit your website mm. to agree to the terms of the privacy policy. So, yeah, it got kind of annoying. It, it went into effect about a year ago, and so that's when all the all the notifications started sure. getting pushed out. Okay, so I think that's a good segue to transition into the security topic, which yep. as a marketer just makes me so anxious because there's so much out there about security. Um, let's talk a little bit about number one, how we kind of keep everything safe. I start with the basics on the website. I see a lot of websites that aren't even secure. Right. And it's a problem. And, and you know, we here in the U.S. are a little bit naive, I would say. I mean, the EU and other countries are a little more on the ball with security in that they have rules requiring that people implement security protocol on their websites. Here in the US, we don't have an overarching rule saying you must make your website safe. There are a lot of different little rules that tell you that you either should or you must. Like, you know, businesses who deal with um, protected health information, Mm -hmm. they're gonna have secure websites because HIPAA applies to them and so they've been told what to do. But your general mom and pop website operator haven't been told what to do and so, they, they just don't even get out of the starting blocks when when sure. it comes to security. Um, I I would say that the everyone should be taking reasonable security precautions. And what that means changes depending on what you have on your website. Okay. Now, does that just mean having the HTTPS so that you have uh, SSL it's certificate? It's a start. It's a start. That's, but that's not enough. What else that's should we be considering? Enough. You know, it, it, people, 
you should have firewalls, you should mm -hmm. use encryption. But again, it depends on what you have on your website. If your okay. website's just a fancy brochure and you're not collecting information, then less security is gonna be required. If you're taking financial information, then you, you should have a firewall. You should have access protocols so that people have to use login credentials to access. You should have agreements with your vendors. I, there's, mm -hmm. there's a lot of things that you should be doing and the more confidential the information is that's flowing through your website, the more steps you need to be taking. But there, there isn't, for again, the, the general mom and pop website, there isn't that specific list saying, okay, here are the 10 things you need to do. That, that hasn't been implemented into a law yet. Sure. I think one of the other interesting areas around this, though, is the failure to update your website software. Oh, heavens. Leaving you open for hacking. And and it, failure to to apply a patch just is probably the, the biggest mistake and the easiest risk to avoid, just mm -hmm. staying up to date on those things. I mean, if you, if you become vulnerable because you don't have a patch on your website and you become subject to a security breach, I mean, you not only have the headache of operationally securing your system, you then are required under Michigan law and the law of pretty much every other state to notify people who have been affected by this breach that this has happened and that their information may have been um, put out there and used mm -hmm. for nefarious purposes. Yeah. Which is expensive. Which right. is expensive. You know, I people say, well, why... You know, why do I care about that now? Because it's much more expensive to have to provide these notifications than it is to make sure that your website is secure. I right. mean, you and hackers are always going to be trying to get into your system. So, well, and it's expensive. And I mean, I think that's like every company's worst nightmare is a data breach and the PR around that and how that looks like there's just so much. And if we're being real, Everyone's going to get breached eventually. Yep. Everyone's going. Everyone's going to experience it's, it. It's when, right? It's, it's when. <laughs> Absolutely, it's going to happen. So the question becomes, how prepared are you to deal with that? How are you? How prepared are you to ward off the intruder to stop them? You know, maybe they can get in the front door, but they mm -hmm. can't get into the bedroom. You know, sure. And how prepared are you to respond when it happens? Like, do you have an IT person you can call to help you when? And many small businesses haven't thought that through until something bad happens and then they're kind of stuck. Too late. Yeah. 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 They have to go scrambling around to get a connection with someone new and sure. you know, a a contractor with whom you've not worked before is not entirely likely to drop everything to come help you out if you haven't already formed a relationship with them. So, yeah. Well, in a mom and pop and a and let's just say, you know, a smaller business with a smaller budget may have a relationship already with an attorney. But sure. I mean, this, as you're saying, SSL certificates, different levels of security, this is all much more advanced stuff than just any general attorney may know. So how is it how important is it for these types of issues to get somebody like yourself that's well versed in all of this type of information and policy. It's important because you have to act fast if something goes wrong. It's always better to plan in advance and people who, attorneys who are experienced with these kinds of issues can help guide small businesses through um, addressing these things without breaking the bank. Because mm -hmm. a lot of these things are not necessarily expensive. They may involve time. It may be that the business can do things internally that, that are more just workforce time and not necessarily dollars out the door. So, you know, 
I know that it's difficult to justify sometimes taking those proactive measures, but the, the point that I keep driving home is, God, it's so much cheaper to to do this before there's a problem. You know, it's it's kind of like, you know, putting putting your evacuation plan together for your school before there's a fire so that everybody knows what to do when something happens. And when you're doing that together, you want to have the people who know where the exits are to help you develop that plan. Sure. Goes back to the old adage, better safe than sorry. Better safe than sorry. And yeah. I mean, and again, it will, everyone will eventually be breached. Mm-hmm. And the question is, how impactful will that breach be on your organization? Yeah. I'm a big bummer about that. And and how how would that look? So say somebody does already have a, a local attorney that they, mm-hmm. you know, work with on most of their stuff and say they wanted to hire you or somebody with your experience to, to come in on their team and say, hey, we've already got all this other stuff going on, but we want you to do this stuff for us. Would that be something that you would work with them on and then also run it by and keep their current attorney in the loop? Or is that something that you would just be kind of a separate thing? Um, it, it can work either of those ways. I mean, I, I do highly specialized work. So I do partner with, you know, sole practitioners who this, this is not something that they care to learn or touch. And so I'll partner with them. And, you know, sometimes I'll directly bill the attorney. Sometimes I'll directly bill the client. Sometimes the, the primary attorney wants to stay involved. Sometimes they don't. It really depends on client preference. And are you also in the realm of communication policy, like social media policy, all that kind of stuff too? Or is that um, I try different? not to get too involved on the employment-related issues. We've got a whole team here who handle that sort of thing. Um, I, I have... I have helped review specific issues within those policies, but yeah, like employee handbooks and that sort of thing is okay. more mm-hmm. of an employment issue. Okay. Sure. I apologize. I digress, no, but I got okay. into it and I'm thinking about, <laughs> you know, how would this look if, if somebody wanted to get mm-hmm. in and, and well, and get this I, stuff set up? Well, and I, you know, most, most attorneys who have helped counsel clients with these issues have a game plan set so that clients can be counseled about what to do. And I know I have a checklist and it's, it's not a secret. And in fact, I, I will share it with you if you want to publish it. I have a checklist that I give to clients that they can use to answer questions about what happened involving the breach. Because before I give advice to a client about what they need to do from a legal perspective Mm -hmm. in responding to the breach, I need to know what happened. For sure. I mean, I'm not the person that will help, you know, close the door to stop the intruder from coming in. I'm not the person who can eject them, but I'm the person that can help them analyze, all right, do we have to tell anybody about this? And, you know, what what obligations do we have to protect ourselves here? Mm-hmm. And yeah, that's, so there's a lot of work that can be done, you know, in cooperation with a team of internal and external people with that. Nice. Yeah, if you have that checklist, can, I'm happy to give it to we'd you. We'd love to. We could put we'd that in the show notes, I and I think we'd also put a link to the the uh, Grand Rapids Business Journal article that kind of summarizes what we're we're talking about today. Because I mean, that was a good outline of just you know the quick hits on the stuff you should be considering. So, get you on your task list, ready to go, and what you need to do. Right. Yeah. So I want to transition to my fave mm-hmm. GDPR. Oh, CCPA. My fave. Wow. <laughs> what does it stand for? You're a sick and twisted individual. Yeah, what does it stand for? What does it all yeah. mean? General Data Protection Directive, right? Did I get that right? General, General Data Protection, Protection Regulation. Regulation. Sorry. Mm-hmm. Um, it is uh, something that exists within the EU, but the reason it's relevant to us is that although this is a regulation promulgated by the e, the European Union, uh, 
if a business in America is directing its website or directing its communications or collecting data toward EU residents, then the regulation may apply to that U.S. business. This is a change from prior EU uh, directives because it its geographic scope is bigger. And I've had clients ask me, oh my God, I have a website. And the website goes everywhere. So do I have to comply with all these laws just because my website can be seen in Germany? It's a good question. No. And and the answer is yeah. no. Just See, that's what I thought. Right. Like anybody can go to our website and they're in the EU. Well, the, generally the answer is no. If you just have a website and people can access it anywhere, that alone doesn't make you subject to GDPR. Okay. However, okay. let's say that your website um, has a button at the top that translates it to German. Then yes, then, yes. I would argue that you are then subject to the GDPR because you are intending Germans or German-speaking peoples to look at your website. Even if you're not collecting specific data on them? Well, you have to be catering to them? GDPR applies to, uh, it regulates the collection of personal information about European Union residents. Okay. So if your website, again, is just static and it's just pushing out information, it's not pulling any information in, then it doesn't apply to you. The reality, though, is that you're probably, if you're running Google Analytics, you're tracking, you're tracking, you're collecting information. And so if you're, if you are found to be directing your website or your services to European Union residents, then yes, you must comply with this sweeping range of um, rules, which are tricky and difficult and expensive uh, to navigate. Yeah, very complex. Which makes me just so interested to hear that this is your favorite. (laughs) Right? What, is, what does this tell you about Megan? That she was so excited about the... That's a whole other podcast, Josh. That's a whole other podcast. The legal podcast and then, and then this. But I think... So GDPR, obviously, EU, but with the, the new, uh, you know, the California Consumer Privacy Act, but people are calling this kind of like GDPR light. Right. How... I guess, do you see this coming in the U.S.? Like, this is going to be a thing in a couple of years where we're going to see something like this? Eventually. I mean, and, and the, we should talk about the California mm-hmm. yeah. um, Act. But first, I want to say the, the U.S. has just been behind on this. I mean, the mm-hmm. EU has had data protection directives for quite a while. Um, and there have there's been legislation in the U.S. It just hasn't made it to a law. I mean, we have the, the industry-specific laws like HIPAA and the Gramm-Leach-Bliley Act and, and mm-hmm. those sorts of things that that impose I don't want to say similar, but they, they, they impose rules for how you have to protect data and what you can do with personal data that you collect. Um, but the U.S., I think we it, it, because it's so political, I don't know when the U.S. will get there because mm-hmm. it's political. Sure. Um, California, it is a little like GDPR light. And I, you know, again, GDPR and the California uh, legislation are, are dense. And so I'm, a, I'm I don't have them in front of me. So I I can't give you specific examples of like comparing them head to head, but um, they both apply to um, the collection, processing and use of personal data, which is, you know, data that's identifiable to a human being. Mm -hmm. Um, If it's anonymized, then there's an exception. You you know, if you're just dealing with data that's anonymized, you, you don't have to worry about complying with these acts. California's act, which doesn't go into effect until next year, um, 
applies to personal data collected about California residents. So you don't have to be a business located in Cal- in California to be subject to this right. law, which I think some people don't really understand. But yeah. California has always been the most progressive state um, as to consumer protection. I mean, California requires that you use a privacy policy on your website if you're directing it to California residents. Um, California's data, pre- data breach um, requirements are more stringent. They have a form and a format that you have to use when you send um, California residents notices of data breaches involving their data. So I would say that California is ahead of the curve. I, sure. I, I don't know that we will. There are other states that will follow, but I it, it may be slower than you think. Okay. Um, so on both of these, uh, are there any... I know there's so much in each of these. Are there any like one or two points that you would boil down that you think are absolutely essential for marketers to really start considering? Marketers need to know what they're collecting and what they're doing with it. And you'd be surprised that not not all of Mm -hmm. them do. I mean, they they're they're more concerned with the end result than the process. And both GDPR and the California legislation um, give individuals rights to control what's done with their personal data so if if you as a marketer are collecting information that is subject to one of these laws um, you have to comply with a lot of requirements and you have to provide certain disclosures and the first step to knowing whether or not you're you're subject to that is to know what you're collecting and about whom and this in and of itself is a giant pain because mm-hmm. for for a company that isn't really tracking things that way, it, it's, it's adding a lot of administrative work to figure that out. Now, I will say there's, there's now a whole cottage industry of service providers that will help with this sort of activity. But sure. That that is the primary step is to is to figure out what you have and what you're doing with it. And correct me if I'm wrong, but the consumer also has the right to request that data. So yes. we as marketers or companies need to be able to have that ready. You need to, to be able over. to produce it and you need to be able to delete it, which is okay. sometimes even a harder step. If a consumer requests in certain circumstances that, hey, I want you to delete all my personal data, you have to honor that. Mm. There are exceptions, but I mean, a, a lot of companies may be caught short shrift because they don't they don't do the processing themselves, and so they haven't thought three steps ahead to how will I do that if I get that request? Sure. Did I hear something with both of these that these are based upon like enterprise sized and different sized businesses? California's is okay. GDPR is not. Okay. And California, there's a, there's a few different requirements, and I can't, I mean, you may have it in front of you, and I can't remember the figures, but yes, you have to be of either a, a, a substantially sized business or you have to be in the business of trading in data. Okay. Yep. So if I can read between the lines, my interpretation here is if you are a big enterprise company and you are gathering large amounts of data, then you really need to be dialed into this. If you are a small business organization, mom and pop, and maybe you're just using Google Analytics, but a a brochure site like the example you gave, uh, this is going to impact you much less, but you should still 
be prepared on the legal side and have your, your basics in line, but that's not going to affect you as much. You should be aware of it. And, and again, it always it's always a good idea to understand your business and what you're doing. So even if you're a mom and pop, and if all you're doing is using Google, Google Analytics, just understand what that means. Understand what it is. And many mom and pop businesses may not have even known until this podcast that they need to have a privacy policy because they use Google Analytics. Mm-hmm. And by virtue of crafting that privacy policy, they will gain some understanding about what is actually happening and what data is being collected and what mm-hmm. output happens as a result of that. So it's, you know, it, it's a process that probably not a lot of people want to get into, but it's, it's increasingly not an option. And if you're working with an agency that is helping you with this type of work or is running your campaigns or whatever, they need to be compliant because that could come back on you? Is it, that- is a- it could absolutely come back okay. on you because if you own the data and you're having someone else process it, then you're both on the line. And that's another change that the GDPR implemented. It used to be that just the processor could get in trouble. Now the data controller can also get into trouble. And, and I also want to emphasize again, and I realize I may be kind of a broken record, but you must have agreements. Mm-hmm. Contractors must have agreements with processors. That is in uh, that is very, it's not only a good idea, it's now a requirement. Um, you must have a written agreement specifying what the processor can and cannot do with the data that they're collecting. Good to know. Yeah. You just need to get somebody like Megan on your team that loves <laughs> right. and lives and breathes this stuff. <laughs> I, I, would, I wouldn't say that I love and live and breathe it. I just think you it's fascinating. strongly in yeah, favor you of were. the beginning of this conversation. It's almost... a fascinating topic as a marketer. I just think because so much is changing and so quickly and there's just so many implications. Uh, but I also think from the consumer side, it does really protect the consumer's data or trying to, you know. And That's trying, the intent. Yeah. Um, so I think there's you know, from both sides, there's there's interesting uh, things happening there. So. It will be it will be very interesting to see how this ends up working because yeah. you know the GDPR is still too new to really have a lot of interpretation legal interpretations out there. The courts have not really taken it and you know taken a specific set of facts and given their interpretation to what the what the requirements really mean, and certainly not California because it hasn't even come into mm-hmm. effect yet. So the the requirements may shift. They may. I, I suspect that the the end game will look a little bit different. It'll be a little bit less scary okay. to people, but that doesn't mean you can't comply with it while you're waiting for that interpretation to actually occur. Sure. So from the example that you gave about the, if, if you requested the information from a company, I guess let's let's use Amazon because they collect data and they're always recommending things based off of what I've done. <laughs> so if I called Amazon and said, I want to know everything that you know about me, they would be able to give me a report that says, you look at bikes too much and you buy too many coffee brewing apparatuses. And- well, they would be able to, but I don't know that they would be required to give you that information because you're not a U- European Union resident and you're not a California resident. But if I move to California and then I request <laughs> that information, <laughs> but they would, they would be able, yeah. they'd be able to kick out a report for you yes. and like just give you all this data. Like this is what we know about you. Yes. Interesting. And does that apply? Okay. If I let, let's just say I live in the EU, does that apply if I have an Alexa in my home? That I couldn't request. Oh, yes. Actually, good there's been and there's been some press about that. Yeah, all that information is is recorded. Okay. 
And I would assume that that falls under the, uh, to me, that seems like personal information. Are, I imagine that Amazon, Amazon owns Alexa, right? I, I, that yeah. Amazon would argue that just the voice isn't identifiable enough with a person that maybe it falls into some loophole, but. Okay. Interesting. Yeah. Oh, if it's connected, if it's connectable, if it's stored in a way or processed in a way where it connects with your account number and your name though. Yeah. Wow. So many well, things. think about the, all the, and not just Alexa, the Internet of Things. I mean, all mm-hmm. of the security cameras, my television. Smart thermostats, smart, smart exactly. doorbells, yeah. everything that's hooked to the Internet can be hacked. Right. And, well, and if you go to <laughs> security summits, I mean, they'll, they'll just tell you what a horrible thing this is because people can ha- hack into all these, and they have yeah. hacked into all these things. And you're by using these things, you're putting yourself out there at risk of people learning all this information and taking over your life. Wow. We still use it anyway, though, we because do. of the convenience. Yep. <laughs> I mean, you have the choice of, you know, you yep. can you can go off the grid and live in your hut with no, no technology. Not very many people would make that choice. But mm-hmm. the, the goal of the the GDPR and the California legislation is that they're, they're trying to give consumers more control over their private and personal information. So with with the hope that 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 doesn't mean that it necessarily protects it from hacking, but it at least gives the consumer some control over where it gets sent and what gets done with it so that they can at least understand, okay, I gave my information to Alexa, but I didn't give it to some other company. Mm -hmm. Okay. Let's just hope there's some sort of standard out there if all the states start getting on board with all of this. So, Well, that's I, I wouldn't hold my breath. I mean, the, the data breach notification example is one. I mean, it, it's most states have um, data breach notification statutes. There isn't a uniform data breach unif- uh, notification protocol. But some states have just gone rogue and they have very specific requirements that don't exist in other state statutes. And so it actually makes it more difficult to comply with 50 states' different laws than it would if there was a federal law. So, I mean, it makes my job more interesting because I have to look at the law of all these different states to tell a client, hey, here's what you got to do. But it would be a lot easier if it were, you know, like I I keep referencing HIPAA. If you're dealing with protected health information, you look at HIPAA and, you know, that's going to tell you what you need to do with protected health information. My my fear is that we're going to end up in a place where we have 50 states and 50 different privacy laws and, you know, I I should be happy about that circumstance (laughs) because it's job security for me, but it'll make it virtually impossible for a small business owner to comply with all these different statutes. That happens. I'm moving to Canada. Right. I'm done. But then again, if I'm selling to people in the U.S. That's right. Canada's got its own, you know, its own set of laws. But yeah, what about, yeah. what's going on with our friends in the north? Jeez. Right. <laughs> yeah. Let's talk a little bit about terms of use. What what would you recommend that we have set up on our websites? Well, oftentimes when you look at a website, you'll see hyperlinks at the bottom, one for a privacy policy and one for terms of lo- use. Excuse me. Um 
you know, very few people may click through to actually look at what's on a terms of use sheet, but that is really where the lawyers can provide <laughs> um, content that helps protect the business, particularly if the website involves ordering goods or services. And, um, it, you know, it, it will contain information like limitations of liability, payment terms, um, you know, restrictions on lawsuits. It can say, you know, hey, if you if you sue us because you didn't like our products, you have to come sue us in Michigan. Those sorts of things. The things that would normally be in a written contract if it was a uh, an arrangement that happened offline. And it's really undersold as a an important tool in transactions because the terms of use that are on the website becomes the legal agreement for your deal transacted through the website. So, so it's important for businesses. This it is, is like very, a very, it's yeah. very important for businesses, particularly if the entire transaction happens through their website. Because, you know, it, think of it. You know, if if you were ordering parts from someone and you weren't doing it online, you'd have a purchase order, and the purchase order would probably have some junk at the bottom that you may or may not read. But if you looked at it, it would talk about you know when it gets delivered, when you have to pay, what happens if you're dissatisfied, other things that help to form the basis of your deal. Mm -hmm. um, the advantage to putting all these things on your website is, I mean, it's really pretty non-negotiable. It's pretty rare that someone's going to try to contact. You know, think about it. Would you mm -hmm. contact Amazon? and say, yeah, I don't like your return policy, so I'd like to negotiate that with you. And Amazon's response would be, go go shop somewhere else. I'm this is the deal is the deal. This is what it says on our website. If you have a website through which you're pro providing goods like that, or even if you're providing services and the contract is formed electronically, that is the basis of your deal. So it is something that you should take seriously. And it sometimes people combine it with their privacy policy and they put both the terms and the privacy policy in the same document. Sometimes they separate it out. It can kind of be done either mm -hmm. way. So if you have a website, and you haven't looked at your privacy policy or your terms of use, or you don't have them yet. It's important, important. to do that. Yep. That's something that you need to take care of. Mm -hmm. And it's, and it's I, I don't want to say easy, but it kind of is. In the grand scheme of things, getting those things nailed down give you so much protection. And it's, from, from an attorney's perspective, relatively easy to put mm -hmm. together. It's not like you're spending tens of thousands of dollars on getting this language on your website. It's a pretty simple proposition. And is this something you would recommend, like kind of having looked over every year? Absolutely. Uh, because a, a year or quarterly or however, you know, periodically, mm -hmm. whatever makes sense for your specific organization. Because again, um, the the disclosures that you have are only as good as the practices. You know, if, if there's a disconnect between what you say and what you're actually doing, then you're going to cause problems for yourself. Mm -hmm. Is it a requirement that you have those as a pop-up for people when they come on the site, or does it just need to be listed somewhere? Um, I like it to be a pop-up sometimes, just because, you know, you can say, oh, he didn't miss it. He knew that this was available. Usually what people will do, if there's an ordering process through a website, there will be a reference to it where people are putting in their payment information or something like that. The terms don't have to be shoved in your face, but saying something like you've seen with the privacy policy pop-up saying, hey, 
by moving forward with this, you're agreeing to our privacy policy and our terms of use. And by moving forward, courts have said, yeah, that's that's enough okay. to show that they've agreed to it. Keeping it just in a footer and having no other reference to it anywhere else, you're putting yourself at a risk. Some some courts will say, yeah, that's not enough. It's not it's not obvious enough that those terms are down there. So getting it out there as part of the transaction is a is a good plan. And another question on that, because I get these emails a lot, mm-hmm. changes to the privacy policy. Is that a requirement to notify people that you've collected data on? That Under GDPR, yes. Okay. Yes. Um, and I think California has some similar, but I can't quite recall off the top of my head. Okay. Is that, would you say it's kind of a best practice though? If it you is. make changes, notify people? You know, it is. I Realistically, it's it's a good idea to do that for chain, changes to your terms of use as well. Okay. I mean, you know, we, there are a lot of different ways to slice that. Mm-hmm. It really depends on how your business operates. I mean, if you're a small mom and pop and you don't want to have to churn out a, an email to everyone in your database, Every time you change your terms of use, then maybe you word your terms of use to say, hey, it's your responsibility for checking the terms of use every time you order something because they may change from time to time. Okay. Privacy policy, the rules are a little bit different, though, because of GDPR. Okay. Interesting. Is it? Yeah. I know. There's just just so much. It's it's a whole world of, uh, but but it's interesting. I mean, if you're in marketing, these are things that you can't not think about. I mean, right, you mm-hmm. can't avoid with everything online right now. That's that's so important that you're you're covered in all this stuff. And I now know from uh, true example. So I'm going to learn from my mistakes on uh, copyrighted material and make sure I'm a little more careful. That is how it works sometimes. <laughs> you know, once you get once you get burned, you you realize maybe I should be paying attention to this in the future. <laughs> I, you know, it, it's been it's been kind of like the Wild West being online. You know, it, the, very few laws that apply directly to it, and lots of potential and possibility. And I think that it's easy to get ahead of yourself because it's it's the functionality is there, and it's just exciting to mm-hmm. to create things. And it's it's tough to remember to tap the brakes and make sure that you've dotted all the I's and crossed all the T's. Yeah, lots to think through before. Yeah, absolutely. Yes. And that's not, you know, fun. No. So. Yeah. <laughs> it's not the sexy piece of marketing, right. but no, it is a very, very vital, vital component. Well, Jennifer, thank you so much. We really appreciate you taking the time to talk to us. Uh, but before we let you go, we do have our final three questions to try to learn a little more about you and what makes you tick. Starting with the first, who or what inspires you? I would say, and this is probably a pretty rote answer, but my my family inspires me. Um, They are a handful and I, you know, they challenge me every day, but they, seeing the potential in them really inspires me to be the best person that I can be, both as an example to them and to you know, provide for them and give them the benefit of a good life. That's great. Yeah. It's beautiful. Oh, is it? It is. I nice. like it. I, I wish I had you a better me, uh... canned answer. No. I don't know. I could come up with something about the dogs, but that, no, yeah, no. No, no family's a great <laughs> That's a great one. That's what, a great whatever one. makes you tick, whatever right. makes you... You got uh, any future lawyers, you think? I really hope not. I've been trying to talk. They, they could all be lawyers the way they argue and rationalize and they've, yeah, since, since you know, exiting the womb, they've been arguing with me and 
have have bested me on a great many occasions. But yeah, they, <laughs> that's got to be tough. Can you imagine your parent being like a lawyer? That's like, a high bar. Yeah. Yeah. It's apparently also difficult to be married to a lawyer because <laughs> I I always ask. I have all the receipts. You know, I have all the texts, and I have all the. If I, my poor husband, I'll ask him to do something, and he'll say, "I don't know what you're talking about," and I'll send him the text, and he's like, "Yep, okay." There's the proof. Yeah. <laughs> you signed. You agreed to this disclosure, right. yeah. and yeah, this is nothing I can. Text is a written agreement. Sorry. Sorry. All right. So what is your favorite personal development, business or marketing related book or resource? We'll say I would I would love to say that I have time to read this stuff. And I just I just don't. You guys, I haven't had. I mean, if I'm reading a book, it is it is not a business resource book i i do related it is it is you know i i read i love reading i i'm a fiction reader i'm a game of thrones person so like that's i'm i'm a you know song of Uh ice and fire like lighting torches waiting for the next one to come out kind of person um i would say though that my i mean when i'm doing both you know learning in my area of the law or in my practice, I take full advantage of all the materials that are available online. Mm -hmm. And there are a lot of uh, materials through either the ABA or, you know, State Bar of Michigan or our practice areas that push out that sort of information that's not very sexy. But Mm -hmm. that's, I mean, I don't know if that I have a favorite of, of okay. those, but okay so well then a, a subset question that i have to yes. ask is uh what are your thoughts about uh brand becoming the king of the seven kingdoms i was just gonna ask that like what do you think we, of the final this yeah. could be a whole separate podcast my friends <laughs> i know we're opening up a can of worms we but really we are. just need the quick nitty-gritty and and john going back to the wall what are your thoughts on that i i liked that I liked John going back to the wall. I thought that that was very elegant and I was totally in favor of that. And frankly, I wasn't as opposed to the whole Daenerys arc, although it was rushed. Um, I thought that the way that it ended up, I, I was on board with that. The thing that bothers me about Bran becoming King, Bran the Broken, oops, spoiler alert, um, he, he had to know all of this was going to happen. Right? He did nothing the about it. Three-eyed all raven. These people he just died. let it happen. And he clearly knew, you know, why do you think I came all this way? He just... Oh. He knew that all of this chaos and destruction was going to happen and did nothing. And and even in the final battle at, um, at Winterfell, he, you know, he just warged out and didn't help with any of the just sat in his chair yeah i so i'm i'm rather conflicted with that now i did i have you heard the or seen the the poster from season one with the raven on the throne no oh god all over social media there's a the poster from season one has the throne and there's a raven sitting on the throne really so now i almost feel like i need to rewatch the whole darn thing which i which i did this season already once but i now need to rewatch it with the lens of knowing that bran is going to become the king of westeros minus winterfall yeah Yeah, i there's a lot of yeah, we really could have a whole separate podcast yeah. about. I think the thing that bothers me the most is, is he just has like no personality. He's so boring. He really is boring. Right, the best story. Really? His isn't the best. He knows the stories. It's not the best story. He just knows the stories. That whole, that, yeah. I not, love not and appreciate the dedication of Game of Thrones fans. <laughs> You're not? I've never uh, seen it. Oh, really? Uh-uh. Oh, wow. Yeah. Oh. So my, my husband 
you know, he and he's also read all the books. He the entire last season just sat and screamed at the television <laughs> because he was so upset. I, I didn't have that level of fury with how everything kind of marched through. I, I, again, thought it was rushed. Right. But. Yeah. Well, yeah. that's what happens when the producers get ahead of the author. Well, and the producers have another gig that they're excited to jump over to. Oh, yeah. I'm sure there will be many spawning off from... No, they're going to... They're doing the... They were hired to do one of the Star Wars spinoffs. Oh. Oh. But I know that there's supposed to be many Thrones prequels and... There's the one that's in production with oh, no. Naomi Watts. Oh, yeah. Wow. That's like thousands of years. Some Naomi Watts. That's... Yeah. Who doesn't, right? <laughs> um, wow. We just found out something about Josh, too. Right. <laughs> okay. How about that last anyway, question? And segue. <laughs> anyway, if you could boil what you've done, learned in your career down to one piece of advice for others, what would it be? Are you asking advice me? Question. I, I, I'm yes. reading the question out loud. She's, she's, <laughs> she's just going for it. I love it. it. She's through. interviewing herself. I am now. interviewing myself. I'm just taking the reins uh, to get off of the, the whole Naomi Watts. <laughs> I think that my advice would be, and I, I don't know if this is advice so much as just observation, the concept of goals and balance shifts and that that's okay. Hmm. And you have to you have to really be aware of what your priorities are moment to moment. And, and I'll I'll give you an example. I you know, started my law career right out of law school at 24 or whatever years old and completely consumed by career. You know, 10ish years later started having kids and there's a natural tension there and there's a lot of pull between family and career and there's a lot of materials out there on balance you know how do you balance it all and and my response is kind of well there there really there is nothing's ever in balance i mean everything's always out of balance because something always takes precedence over something else and that's okay sometimes you have to pick family over career sometimes you pick career over family and that decision might change from day to day mm-hmm. and that's okay I it doesn't that. always have to be completely aligned and even and it's unrealistic to think that it's even possible. There's a lot of pressure to maintain that balance these days, right? There is. And yeah. I think I really do think that it's a fiction. And even if even if we're not talking about kids in the equation, just the concept of, you know, work and life, mm-hmm. something you're always making a choice one over the other, whether you're choosing to, you know, run a marathon and you need to get all that training in, um, or you've got a a really important project at work, there's always going to be something that has to take precedence over the other. And that's just reality. That's just something that you have to make a choice and then live with the choice and don't expect it to always be even. Good advice. It's okay to not have the balance. It's okay to not have balance. An interesting perspective on that, one of the really famous books right now, The One Thing, Gary Keller from Keller Williams Realty, uh, talks about living in the extremes. And I, I don't want to misquote, but I believe he said there is there's no such thing as balance. It's about knowing when to go into the extremes of work life and personal life because nothing happens when you're balanced and in your safe area. The one thing is just about focusing on that one biggest thing that would make the biggest change in your life and it's about getting out of the balance, out of staying right in the middle of where you need to be and bouncing back and forth between those extremes. So I think that's something that 
hit hit on the See, head. See, now there's a book that perhaps there you I go. should find. That you should read. <laughs> While I'm waiting for Winds of Winter. Or, right? yes, or you could get that on Audible or wherever you listen to uh, audio books. Uh, whenever you have a spare chance, if you don't have a lot of time to sit down and read a book or you don't have the attention um, capacity like I do to sit down <laughs> I can listen to it in the car while exactly. we're sitting, sitting in construction traffic. Exactly. Plenty exactly. Of time. Yes. Well, Jennifer, thank you so much. Jennifer Poplava, attorney at Micah Myers, PLC, online at micahmyers.com. Do you want to put out any information there if people want to contact you, ask you questions? Hire you on to come and get them into the uh, the good legal graces of the European Union and soon to be California. <laughs> Wonderful. I, I'm happy to talk with people about questions they may have about this or other things. Uh, there's more information about me and what I do and what my law partners do on our website, which is M-I-K-A-M-E-Y-E-R-S dot com. And incredibly, I'm the only Jennifer at oh. the law firm, which is just odd given Pretty the number up. of Jennifers yeah. out there. So um, if you if you can navigate to our homepage, you can find my profile and it has my contact information online. So happy, happy to chat with people about questions they may have and whether I can help them address some of their their needs. Well, this has been truly fascinating. I could talk about this all day long. So thank you so much for joining us. I'm glad to have been here. Thanks for the opportunity. Absolutely. You might have to set up a rule in your email now for Megan to go like into a certain folder because you'll (laughs) have a million questions. (laughs) Oh, there's another one for Megan. All right. We'll put links to those in the show notes. Jennifer, thank you so much for joining us and talking to us today. Thank you. We're online at amawestmichigan.org and active on social media where you can connect with us on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, and LinkedIn. The national hub for the American Marketing Association is ama.org, where you can also find a chapter near you. The Marketers in Motion podcast is on iTunes, Stitcher, SoundCloud, and at amawestmichigan.org, where we encourage you not only to subscribe and share our podcast, but review, ask questions, get involved, and engage with us. Don't forget important links, content, and resources will be included in the show notes for this podcast. Thanks for listening to the Marketers in Motion podcast powered by the West Michigan chapter of the American Marketing Association. What will you do with the information you learned today? Be inspired. Be creative. Be bold. Set your marketing in motion.